We're going to continue on with our uh, sermon series called Church uh, Matters in the section called Body Life. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. And I thought this might be a good time for me to review a little bit the context of this whole entire epistle of this book called 1 Corinthians. So the Apostle Paul, church planet, the, the, the Corinthian church, he spent 18 months there. In the book of Acts, it tells us that he spent 18 months and he preached the gospel and many came to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's exciting. and But he got to understand the culture very well. The secular culture surrounding the church in Corinth. And the Corinthian culture was a very status-driven culture where certain things gave you more status and certain things gave you higher uh, point in the status food chain. Things such as uh, wealth, things such as popularity through being connected to certain type of speakers or certain type of orators. And the Corinthian church started forming cliques within the, the church itself. So the culture was seeping in. Once again, Paul is constantly addressing the culture seeping in to keep the church pure. And there was a ma- massive division taking place in the church. And keep in mind, the Corinthian church was made up with all kinds of people. Extremely wealthy tradesmen, businessmen. And also at the same time, you had very poor slaves who may have been actually owned by their church members. Can you imagine that dynamic? Dock workers, blue-collar workers. So the, the socioeconomic a uh, uh, spectrum was very varied. Okay, this is a ripe for a lot of division taking place. So, Paul writes letters. Okay, they're called epistles. So, First Corinthians was the first of two letters that we know of that he wrote of, and to address some of these things, to to encourage some of these things, to correct some of these things, so that they would have proper body life going on. Body life means life in the church. Okay. So we'll read out of 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. If you have your Bibles, please turn to them. And if you have your devices, please follow along. And let's rise as we read the scriptures together. I'll be reading out the NASB version. Okay, so let's read the Word of God together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17 through 34. But in, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. From the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you. Why? So that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in, in which to eat and drink? Or do, you not, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. Verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry... Comma, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the serious word of correction and, and admonishment that Paul gave to the church in Corinth. Help us to see your heart in it, and help us to see where we need to be corrected as a church family. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. <coughs> The Lord's Supper, that's the name of the title of, 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 the, of the sermon today. But right now, this is the Lord's Day, and uh, I'm coming off the afterglow of an incredible wedding last night. I was able to conduct a wedding ceremony last night and have a great celebration after. It was phenomenal. And as, as I was conducting the wedding, I was reminded weddings are a one-time special event. You get married, it's for one time, God willing. And you, this is where you exchange your vows to one another. This is where you exchange uh, rings to one another to symbolize your undying love and commitment to one another. Also, there's a declaration of intent where the uh, bride and groom agree on why they're there for in front of all family and friends who are able to come. So let me just read to you kind of what I read. And uh, perhaps you're thinking about getting married too. This is what, in, in essence, what you be, have read to you too. To the groom or to the bride, do you take this woman or man to be your husband, wife or husband to live together in the holy covenant of marriage? Do you promise to love her or him, comfort her, honor her, keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her so long as you both shall live? Then I will go on to say, if so, please answer, I do. And both of them said, I do. So they're making clearly, they're defining the relationship. They're defining what this whole marriage is supposed to be about. And undoubtedly, if I would hope, a year later, they'll have an anniversary meal to just celebrate. Hey, remember a year ago, we're up in this place, and wasn't it awesome? I feel even more committed to what we talked about, right? This is There's an anniversary meal, which is a repeating event, whether it's annually or every month, or however you want to do it. It's a regular repeated event to help us keep us connected to our commitment to one another. Amen? So we understand what we're talking about. And the Lord gives us, gave us two ordinances. In the church, there's baptism which is a one-time event to make a public declaration to say, I'm with Christ, and I'm with the body here. And in essence, there's, there's also a declaration of intent. It says, have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? 
He says, yes, I have. Right? There's a declaration of intent. And this is a one-time event. Believer's baptism is what we do. Those who believe in Christ, who are followers of Christ, go through an official ceremony to affirm and to communicate their love to the Lord and also to one another here at the local church. Now, the other ordinance that we're going to talk about today is called communion. And some people call it the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. And so today, we're going to find out what is communion all about. Obviously, this is not a one-time event at Evergreen SGV. We practice this. We observe this every month. The first Sunday of the month is when we do this. So what is communion all about? I'm going to give you the points ahead of time so you can track with me a little bit easier. Communion, what is communion all about? Communion is a reminder of our commitment to one another. What is communion all about? Point number two, communion is a reminder of our commitment to Christ. Right? Finally, what is communion all about? Communion is a reminder of our commitment to holiness. Holiness. So let's get right to it. Let's go to point number one. What is communion all about? Communion is a reminder of our commitment to one another. One another. First of all, like the big concept that comes out clearly in this, in this section from verse 17 to 34 is this idea of when you come together, when you meet together. This word is used five times in this section. So this is talking about when the church gathers and the church is called to gather. Amen? Physically. And this is why we're making a big appeal for the church family to come back together. When you come back together. When you come together. It's used five times. This is talking about the assembly of the body of Christ at the, church, uh, at the local church level. So Paul is addressing what should take place when we come together. And verse 17, 18 is very... Very clear what Paul's talking about. He goes, but in giving this instruction, I not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. He's saying, it's better that you didn't even get together. What? Would a pastor ever say that? But sure enough, Paul does. And we're going to find out why he feels so strongly that there are problems here. Verse 18, for in the first place, okay, here's point number one. For in the first place, Paul writes, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. I mean, he must have felt the strong tension of the culture when he spent those 18 months there. Oh, man, he's thinking, wow, this status thing is huge here in Corinth. It wouldn't surprise me after I leave that this starts to creep in at at this church. Divisions, instead of being unified, they're fragmented. So what was going on? Let me give you a little bit of a cultural background. Let's, like we talked about last week, let's get in our time ship here. We're going to go back 2,000 years to Corinth and, and see what, what was happening. What could you expect as you walked out of that time machine is this. First century Cor- Corinthian church, they pretty much gathered in homes owned by prosperous members. They didn't have big buildings and facilities like this, okay? They met in homes, house churches. And they used to have love feasts. Attached to their services. What is a love feast? They're modern day potlucks for us. You know, potluck meals where people will contribute and bring in a meal. And this was meant to grow the fellowship, the koinonia between one another, between brothers and sisters. And this was to emphasize the affection that they had for one another, the the commitment to caring for one another. This was a special time. It was a very rich and tender time. And it was meant to unify But what happened here? Let's look at verse 20 here. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not 
to eat the Lord's Supper. What's going on there? For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. Okay, what is going on here? Instead of being inclusive and saying, hey, church family, this is an official, keep in mind, this is the official church gathering. This is not like a private event, right? This is not a private thing. You're having a private meal with somebody. This is an official, hey, we're gathering. And something was taking place. Instead of being inclusive, it became exclusive. Status. Divisions, cliques were being formed here. Keep in mind again, Corinthian church was made up of wealthy, wealthy businessmen, tradesmen, orators, and combined with poor slaves and blue-collar workers. So what happened was this. The rich homeowners would invite their rich friends, and the poor were left out in the home. If we go back into one of their homes, they had a dining room, just like we would have today, and there was only limited spacing. In that dining room, that was kind of privileged Status and, and the rich would invite the rich, and they would have phenomenal meals together. They have the finest food, the finest drinks, and what they would do is they would get engorged, and some of them would get drunk because they're having such a jolly time. But in the overflow room, there's like an atrium. <laughs> Rest of you all are out there. All you others are out there in the atrium, and what they would get is the scraps and the leftovers, and they were left hungry and felt obviously and understandably marginalized. That's what was happening. And this, this, can you imagine that atmosphere? I mean, this created a very divisive atmosphere. And then what would happen, the leader or the host would say, okay, brothers, let's gather together. Now it's time to take the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine that? This is where we show our love for the Lord and for one another. Isn't this great? We're one big happy family, Right? So it was a contradiction. It was a, there's so much hypocrisy that it was very divisive. In verse 20, Paul was saying, he was very direct. When you, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Meaning you're not eating, taking communion to honor the Lord, but you're doing this to honor yourselves. You're just simply using this as a platform to raise your own status. That's horrible. Paul is appalled. He is shocked. You're using this to, to further this status thing. So verse 21, now I love this. I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible says, what? As an explanation point, like what? Paul is provoked, like hold on now. This is unacceptable. He was provoked and because you're using the Lord's Supper for your, to build up your own empire. This is wrong. This is Jesus' empire, not your own in, in Corinth. And you're just simply using Jesus as a means to build yourself up. Paul was enraged because this is not the gospel. Right? You're disrespecting the head and disrespecting other members of the body. Instead of communion being the most unifying time, it became the most divisive time in the life of the church. Back in 2017, I want to get very personal with us here as a church family. Okay, back in 2017, my family and I moved down. I got into pastoral ministry. It was a privilege. I was excited, and we would take communion. And we, if you guys recall, we used to go to the tables and 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 either take it with our family units or go up by yourself. And I was, oh, this is great communion. I'm sitting up there just watching the people. Was, this is wonderful. I had a different view as a pastor for the first time, but also I had a different ear now. And during that year, I was kind of provoked too. 
What I was hearing is some people did not feel comfortable on communion Sunday. I'm like, what's going on? This should be the most unifying time. Some people felt awkward going to the communion table. Some people did not want to come up to the communion table. And I was thinking, why is that? Well, some of the people that were uh, getting this information to me were oftentimes widows, oftentimes young adults. And I was thinking, wow, this is interesting. I was thinking, so why is this? I'm, I'm, I'm racking my mind here and Throughout my history, I've been always trying to establish culture, whether in my own family home or teams and organizations. So I was like, what, what, what's going on here? Let me understand the culture here. What's going on? And so what was important to understand is what is the ethos of the church, your family, your business, your organization that is established? What is ethos? And it's important for us to understand this. Is this ethos is the institutionalized mark based on values, beliefs, and ideals. So these values that you raise up sets up an institutionalized way of doing things. Okay, so in, in Corinth, status was very important. Status. And status was rooted in wealth and resources or being associated to prominent people. That raised up your status. That raised you up. The ethos set the culture of exclusion. Like, you don't fit in our group. You're not part of this inner circle. The ethos determined your, your worth. The, the ethos determined who you would share with and who you wouldn't share with. Ethos determines what we say and what we don't say. Ethos determines who we include or exclude. This is what guides you and it sets the culture for what's normal, what's accepted, and what you just take. This is how it is. This is how it is at this place, right? It sets the pattern of behavior and it's rooted in a certain value. So I just think to myself, why, why, why would people feel awkward about taking communion? This is about Christ. This should be a, a good time. Well, as I observed, this is my humble opinion. I think some of the values that we have and we and our good values, amen, are things such as being part of a nuclear family. I have wife, I have children, I love nuclear family. Very important. Certain things of sports, maybe youth sports. I played sports all my life. I love sports. I don't think anyone in this church loves sports more than I do. Right? I don't think I do. French, friends groups. Being associated with certain people, I think friendships and relationships are very important. However, if any of these things rivals Christ as supreme, as the most important thing in the life of our church, then it sets a negative ethos. It sets, a, it sets that type of culture where if I don't have family uh, members to come up with me, I feel awkward. If I don't have certain value things, if I'm not part of a team, I feel awkward. I don't feel like I fit in. So everything will drive this idea. If you walked away thinking, I don't fit in. Or you might think, I do fit in. This sets up a very divisive atmosphere. So when we come to the Lord's table or take communion with divisions, you know what happens? We communicate something to one another. Because think about it. You look around. You, you, you know each other 
to some levels. And you know if there's been some things like that taking place. So when you come to the Lord's table and say, I love you, Jesus, and I love your people, there's a disconnect there. 1 John 4.20 says this, How can we love and say we love God who we've never seen, yet hate my brother or sister who I see all the time? Right? Where is the consistency? You can't do that. So when those who don't have or those who aren't in, they, they feel like, wow, this is fake. This is not genuine. This is just a ritual. This is just a show that we do. This doesn't feel real. That is very divisive. That fragments the body. And communion needs to be the most unifying time in the life of the church. This is our anniversary meal that we take for, uh, to affirm our love for Christ and His love for us and for one another. And so why is it so unifying? Because at the Lord's table, we, we come on level ground. doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. doesn't matter if you have a family or no, no nuclear family. doesn't matter if you're healthy or diseased. We come to the Lord's table on level ground. That's where, boom, the Lord just eliminates all those things. So there is the message that we could communicate to one another. So communion is a reminder that we're actually committed to one another. So when we come to the Lord's table, with, with, if we're clinging on to certain status things of the world, we communicate a contradiction there. That makes sense? Let's move on to the next point. What is communion all about? Communion is a reminder of our commitment to Christ. This is, this is going to pick up here now. You're going to love this here. Paul attempts to reestablish the essence of communion. I mean, just like Christmas, aren't we constantly fighting brothers and sisters to establish the essence of what Christmas is about? You know, no, it's not about Santa Claus. It's not about gifts. It's not about eating. It's about the birth of Christ. We're, we're constantly trying to do that. Paul was trying to reestablish the essence of what communion, the Lord's table, was all about. And he says in verse 24, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. This is not Paul's idea. This is not man's idea. This is from the head of the church. This is from Christ himself. Where did Paul receive this? Perhaps in the three years that he spent with Jesus, the risen Lord in Nabatine, Arabia, in the wilderness for three years before Paul started his ministry, perhaps. And many scholars believe this is the first account of the of communion where the Gospels were written later. So this may be the first written account of communion. So Paul is saying, look, I received this from Christ himself. And I'm gonna I, and I've delivered this to you. And look at this, verse 24. This is gonna grip your heart now. Let me back up a little bit. He uh, for I received from the Lord, verse 23. That which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed at the Last Supper, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? Which is for you. This is one of the most endearing. Parts of scripture you'll ever find where God Himself says, This is for you. Yes, He's speaking in a plural sense to the entire church of Corinth, 
and to the disciples at the Last Supper, but very personal. This is for you. And he says this, do this in remembrance of me. So what are we to remember when we take the bread, which is for you and me? Which is for you means that we get all of Christ, everything about who Jesus is, what he has done, what he's going to do. I mean, God gives us his best. He cannot give us any more. God cannot offer us anything more than Christ. God gives us himself. And we get all of Christ. And that's when, see, let me give you a survey. Okay, this is, I don't have enough time to give you, give you in depth. I'm going to give you a survey. When you take the bread, May 2nd, when you take the bread, what you're affirming and remembering is this. I have all of Christ. Christ is my life. You remember all the blessings that Jesus gives to us. You have all his teachings. You have his mind. You have his spirit. You have, you're the beneficiary of his ministry, reconciliation. That means that we're adopted sons and daughters of God. That means that we have eternal inheritance, eternal riches. That means we have every spiritual blessing. Are you kidding me? We also, when we take that bread, we also remember that we belong to him. Jesus is the head. He's our head. Since he's our head, we are committed to him. He's our Lord. And we are his body. Jesus is Lord. See, that bread means everything to us. This is the blessing. Like, yes, I am part of you. You're part of me. And this is a very emblematic thing. God, Jesus gives us a physical reminder of spiritual realities. We actually eat this. Brothers and sisters, we actually eat this cracker or bread as an emblem of it, be, it becomes part of us. What does the cup represent? What are we supposed to remember? Let's look at verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying... This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. New covenant, new promise. God gives us a new promise through his blood. What is that promise? Remember that Jesus Christ is completely committed to us. He proved it by giving up his life, his, his, by bleeding for, for you and me. When you take that cup, do this in remembrance of me, what you remember is Jesus' suffering, Jesus' betrayal, Jesus' abandonment, Jesus' arrest, Jesus' mock trial, Jesus' torture as he was lashed and lashed and lashed, and Jesus going to die on the cross. This is what you're remembering as you take in that juice, which represents his blood. Why? Why did Jesus have to bleed? Well, Hebrews 9 says this, No covenant from God has any power without the blood. Billy Graham, I remember him saying this through Greg Laurie. He said this, I wish I preached more on the blood of Christ. Why, Billy? Because that's where the power is. The power is in the blood, in the blood, in the precious blood. Jesus paid it all. We just sang that song. The power is in the blood. 1 Peter 1.19 says, We've been, the church has been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. 
Acts 20, 28 says we, the church has been purchased with his own blood. Without blood, there is no covenant. The blood guarantees that the promise is good. Jesus paid it all. And then in verse 26 here, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, Paul combines communion of the bread and the cup. What do you do, church family, at Evergreen and in Corinth? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You remember that Jesus is coming back. That we're not home yet, brothers and sisters. This reminds us to have an eternal perspective on life. This is just temporary. Jesus is reminding us every month, particularly here at Evergreen, that we're not home yet. Don't live for today. Don't live for today. And communion is only a foretaste of what's going to happen someday when we have an actual supper with Him, actual meal with Him. Can you imagine that? It's not going to be a piece of bread and a little, uh, uh, what is that called? Cup of juice, okay? It's going to be a full-on meal with Jesus Christ himself. This is just a foretaste. This is just a reminder of what's going to happen. So when you take that cup and you take the bread on May 2nd, understand this. Understand this, the richness of what's taking place. All right, let's go on to our final point here. What is communion all about? Communion is a reminder of our commitment to holiness. Holiness. Anniversary meal. So if that couple, whoever gets married a year later, they have the anniversary meal, maybe they go to that special restaurant, maybe they go out to their first date that they went on, and you need to show up in a worthy manner, brothers and sisters, okay? It would be highly inappropriate for you to be thinking about somebody else while you're at that, at that meal, Amen? You shouldn't be thinking about your friend from high school. You shouldn't be thinking about your friends on Facebook and Instagram. This is just one-on-one time here. So even in an anniversary meal, we understand we need to come in a worthy manner. Otherwise, we completely disrespect our partner and completely disrespect what that whole event is about. It's just a show. You're just saying, check, I got it done. It doesn't mean anything. So let's look to verse 27 now. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What does this mean to take in an unworthy manner? First of all, let me just say very clearly, all of us are unworthy to come to the Lord's table. All of us. None of us deserve it. However, because of Christ, we are worthy. It's all grace. We don't deserve it. It's pure grace. But an unworthy manner means this, that you come with an improper attitude. You're, you're just careless about it. All right, whatever. Just, let's just take, get this over with. You come indifferent. This is just this is not, not a big deal. You have a low level of respect, low regard for what the bread and the cup represents. After all I just talked about from the scriptures, you know how important the bread and the, the, the cup are. Although they don't save us, it's a reminder of the seriousness of what we've been brought into. So we need to take the Lord's Supper or communion with the highest of seriousness. That means that we take sin seriously and we take holiness, the call and charge of holiness seriously. Because when we don't, we are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What does that mean? That means you just disrespect Christ and his immense sacrifice. That's what you do. That's what it means. So verse 28, Paul tells the people and tells us 2,000 years later, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and the cup, the drink of the cup, 
means you check yourself. That means you need to test yourself to make sure you're approved. That means that God gives us a regular checkpoint. Some churches do it every week. We do it once a month. But God gives us a regular checkup, a kind of like a spiritual MRI to make sure that we're examining ourselves every time we get ready to take the Lord's Supper. This is a very serious thing. This is a very loving thing from Jesus to make sure that we're doing regular checkups. What must we check in with ourselves? Well, number one, the Lord's Supper is for Christians. So first of all, am I a genuine Christian? Am I a genuine follower of Jesus Christ? Right? That's the first thing. You just want to keep, the Bible says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Keep asking this. Keep making sure that you're in the faith. Not that you're scared of you in or not, but, you know, just continue to affirm, yes, I am in Christ. Second thing we need to test is this. Do you know of any known sins that you need to repent of? We're all going to struggle, brothers and sisters. No one's perfect. However, we need to be in the fight. We need to struggle. We need to strain. We need to be repenting. We need to be confessing these things to the Lord. Amen? Third thing, any divisions within the body. Are you divided with anyone in the church? When you come to the Lord's table and we're standing together... On May 2nd, as Pastor Dan leads us in the communion, taking the communion, as you, and we're going to encourage us to look around. This is who you're, who's with you, and this is who you're with as we worship the Lord together. Is there some kind of division? It's going to communicate some kind of disconnect. It goes, man, I love you, Jesus, but that brother or sister, I cannot stand. There's a problem there. The Bible says this, as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. May 2nd. May 2nd. So what happens is this. If we don't take communion in a worthy manner, what's happening in Corinth was this. Verse 29. Let me draw your attention to verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. What does this mean? Judgment. doesn't mean condemnation. A Christian is saved by Christ. He's held by Christ for eternity. But this is chastisement. What's, what was happening is some of the Corinthians were getting weak and sick. They're getting, they're getting disease. They're getting ill. And some were asleep, meaning they, some of them died. Jesus, the Lord, was pruning his church and removing some of these unfaithful uh, uh, believers and bringing up to heaven early to get them out of the way and to make a point that holiness is a very serious thing that we need to take and consider deeply. This is a very serious matter. Hebrews 12 says this, that a loving father will discipline his children, right? Even us earthly fathers, we know we need to discipline our children. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, judgment begins with the household of God, right? So there are things like that. That the Lord does graciously to care for the health of the church. If you, if you need more information on this, read about Ananias and Sapphira, uh, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. Right? How they were blatantly trying to deceive the Lord and the Lord took them out. To set the tone for the holiness, how important holiness is to the life of the church. So what will the church leadership do if this is for church members who are Truly Christian, of course. But what if we find out that there's an unrepentant sin or there's massive division in the church? Well, 
What we would do is we would contact you privately and say, hey, if we get wind of these things, hey, have you considered these areas? This is what we're thinking about. Make sure you take communion in a worthy manner. Repent. Uh, seek to reconcile. And then take communion in a worthy manner. If this ever gets to the level of church discipline where we have to uh, uh, excommunicate somebody, then we will fence the table and say, you're not welcome to take communion with us until these things are resolved. Right, so I mean that's a very extreme level where church discipline gets to the to the to the public setting of the uh, of the local assembly. Okay, but we would literally, you know, fence the table not with a fence but with a person watching it, and they would be told, you know, you're not welcome to take communion until you care. And this is this is the issue because we look to seek to restore people. We don't want to make it sound, hey, no, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It is a big deal. But also, we want to uphold and raise up what it means to take communion. This is a serious matter. Hugely serious. And I think as church members, you would want your leaders to make sure communion is held at the high, with the highest of regards based on what we just learned right now. Perhaps you knew this already, but at least we're reaffirming it to one another right now. Okay? Now, I'm going to finish up here. I'm going to give a, a few points of application. How is this going to affect the life of Evergreen SUV? On May 2nd, this is our next communion opportunity. I'm, and I thought to myself, well, maybe we could do communion today. But you know what? I think it's good that we take a few weeks to prepare our hearts to work on any relationships within the church. So when we do come back indoors and we take communion and we're going to be able to see one another, and goes, yes. You're going to think some things. And it's going to be a unifying time because you can come expecting not only yourself, but other brothers and sisters of our church family are taking some things seriously. And this is when communion becomes a very unifying time, the most unifying time in the life of Evergreen SGV. We'll be taking communion at the same time. We'll ask the congregation to come up to the tables, grab their elements, and get back to their seats. There'll be a song going on, and Pastor Dan will explain some of these things, and he'll come back up, and then we'll finally take the elements together. And like I said earlier, as we rise up in the building, we're going to be looking at, encourage you to look at each other. Look who's saying that they're in with Christ and in with you. Right? And then, but also have assurance that not only you, but others taking communion have genuinely committed to one another, have genuinely committed to Christ, and have are genuinely committed to holiness. Know that you're not the only one going through this, is what I'm saying. Like, hey, we're in this together. Good. Good. I, I, in, in, in good earnest, I, I believe everyone is going, doing heart surgery on themselves. Taking a look at that spiritual MRI. Okay? So what do we need to do in these next couple weeks? Let's examine ourselves, okay? Am I a genuine follower of Jesus Christ? Number one, first and foremost, that needs to be reconciled. Number one, clearly. Number two, is there any sin that we need to repent of? Okay, any, th- any type of sins that you know of? Thirdly, this might be the most challenging one. Is there anyone that you need to reach out to, to reconcile, to to Connect with another brother or sister. This might be the most challenging, the most sanctifying one. I'm involved with all these things as well myself. These are hard. These are humbling. And particularly if you're not at fault. You get to act like Christ and reach out to someone who sinned against you. What an affirmation of the power of the gospel. Amen? So let's make sure that we go through this process 
individually. And, and I would recommend, tell, tell a brother or sister that what you're going through to help encourage them in it as well. And they'll be able to encourage you in it as well. This is not a, an alone thing. This is a very communal thing. This is what we're talking about, the Lord's Supper. Okay? And this will be an incredibly unifying time. Now to finish up here, Jesus Christ is the hope of glory. He is the one that we love. He's the one that we hope for. He's the one that we long for. Being in with Him means that we're in with one another. There are no inner circles. He is the circle, and we've been drawn into Him by Him. And nothing must be elevated above Christ in our church family. We all must be vigilant about seeing any of these things starting to form. We need to be lovingly addressing these things so Christ is always at the head. He's at the top. So our ethos, what is our ethos at Evergreen SUV? We are all about Christ. All I have is Christ. Therefore, if we agree that this is the value, then the true discipleship culture will take place because I would want your help to keep me holy and you would want my help to keep you holy and we want to be interactive with one another to help each other achieve this. All right, so as we sing this next song, this closing song, I would really encourage our church family. Part of the blessing of coming together is to be able to sing with one another, to hear one another. This is what I've been talking to our worship leaders about. The goal is to hear you and I sing. And so let's make sure as we sing this last song titled, All I Have is Christ, let's sing it in a worthy manner. As if we're actually excited about Christ and we're going to encourage one another. Let's sing. Let's sing. This is what we're called to do. This is what's pleasing to the Lord. It's like a pleasing fragrance and aroma to our Lord. He's watching. Worship is for Him. He's watching. He's here with us. And the chorus is going to go like this. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord's Supper. Thank you how you have set this up to keep us reminded of the treasures and the richness that's associated with the bread and the blood. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray for our church family, your church family, that our ethos will be that all I have is Christ. Jesus, you're our life. And I pray you would establish a strong discipleship culture here at Evergreen SGV where we want the same things, we're about the same things, we're identified in the same things. And that's you, Jesus. So, Father God, I pray by your Spirit, you will move us to sing and to worship you right now. Father, I pray, Lord, that you will receive worship that's pleasing to you, Lord. And we will sing in a worthy manner. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.